welcome to the Spy Who Raised Me podcast. Conversations between a daughter and her father. Yes, you've guessed it. He was a spy. Hi, I'm Jane Craigie and I'm here with my dad, Ian Craigie. And he spent his career as a spy. So it created much hilarity in the family and uh, amongst our friends. And what we're going to talk about today is his time, his second posting in Turkey, when he was based in Ankara uh, between 1989 and 1991, um, just before the first Gulf War. So, Dad, tell us a little bit about why you were there during that time. Hi, Jeannie. You sound uh, very awake and alert and ready to go. Uh, yes, I was there. Um, my, my function was to coordinate uh, in the embassy the uh, various transactions that we had with the Turkish government. Uh, basically, the general staff who were in Ankara, at least just outside of Ankara, and the monies that were paid by the British government on a three-year basis under a, an understanding that every three years we reassessed what was happening. We were using um, Turkish facilities in Sinop, which is on the Black Sea coast. And the purpose of that was to keep track of the development within Russia of their military capacity, of their missiles, uh, ballistic and uh, and conventional. Uh, so that was the main that was the main uh, reason for being there. I had staff in um, Sinop, around a hundred staff who came on uh, six month uh, tours from uh, Cheltenham from DCHQ. Uh, to man the facility. Uh, my, my office was in the um, embassy in Ankara. So I had to orchestrate the um, admin side uh, that covered um, the surveillance effort in Sinop. Uh, and also I had to dovetail in with the FNCO, with uh, the ambassador and his his minions in, in the embassy. That, in actual fact, that, that wasn't uh, that much of a chore because the FNCO tended to keep their, um, their work and, uh, and uh, their, uh, their conversation with Turkey to themselves. We did get some... some uh, um, you'd get some sort of idea of what they were feeling, what they were thinking about the GCHQ arrangements. So yeah, that was, that was about it. There for two years um, and an amazing experience, uh, not only because Turkey was such an exciting place to be, so many changes in, in such a vast country. And um, I think we look back on it and think, wow, that was that was so so interesting. But uh, yes, what did you think of of Turkey, Jenny? You were there. 
Yeah, well, I, I, um, I was also going to ask you, my, my next question links back to my knowledge of Turkey. So we were based there as a family in the early 1970s. Uh, so I was under the age of 10 um, and Emma, um, my younger sister, was just a toddler, really, wasn't she? Um, and we spent um, nearly three years in Istanbul. Um, so my memories of Turkey were um, just a vibrant, warm culture, a beautiful country and um, lots of freedom um, and lots of attention from, from Turks because I was a young, young girl with blonde hair um, and there weren't many blonde children in, the, in, in Turkey at the time. So those are my memories really of, of Turkey and they're very, very fond um, uh, and, and I'm also, um, perpetually intrigued about Turkey as a nation, its geography, its politics, um, its, um, you know, its, its importance in that whole region of the Middle East. Um, so yeah, it, it, it absorbs a lot of my thinking time still, even though it was many, many years ago that we lived there. And that... That's the advantage of having spent time in a country like Turkey. You know, you have, you have a, a, an understanding of what the country is all about. And uh, even contemporary uh, history and, and the happenings in a country like that, it's so interesting to be able to follow it, but have some idea of, of the country as a whole. Yeah, very much so, Dad. And you were you were in um, Turkey. The f your first posting, you were in your thirties, and your second posting. Um, so what we're talking about now, the Ankara posting, eighty nine to ninety one. You were in your late forties. Um, what differences can you remember from the, those two eras in in that country? Well, I think. Um... It has to be said that, of course, the job that I was doing in the uh, consulate in Istanbul was totally different to the, um, to the one in uh, Ankara and just illustrated how much had changed uh, in the world during that period. But in, in Turkey, I mean, Turkey, uh, we covered quite a lot of Turkey in different ways. Uh, we used to go to the Black Sea coast. We used to go, uh, you know, inland to, to various touristy sites. But it gave us a, a fairly deep understanding of what the country was like, the politics of the country and the people. And, I mean, the thing that we all agree was that the Turkish nation, the Turkish people, were very hospitable people. They were very natural people. And all our travels uh, through and in uh, Turkey illustrated that. I don't think we were ever in a situation where we felt threatened or where we felt that people were being inhospitable. They were just lovely, lovely people. And um, the uh, difference between that period and mid-70s through to um, 88, 89 was, was quite dramatic and the politics were different. Uh, of course, Ataturk was, was the leader who, who started it all, becoming 
secular nation instead of a, an Islamist nation. And that, that um, was a profound change for a country with so many customs and so many different uh, ethnic um, minorities and so on. And uh, I think at that, at that time in the mid-70s, it was quite, the political scene was quite relaxed. I mean, they had odd coup d'etats and so on, where the military, which was always very, very strong in Turkey, used to try and take over the government. But, but in general, it was, it was fairly relaxed. They had problems with the Kurdistan, with the, Kurd, with the Kurdistani thing, where Kurds uh, were trying to establish a homeland, having been evicted from their homeland in east of Turkey, the east of Turkey and the north of Syria. So um, that uh, that was evident throughout. And uh, here's my other daughter, Emma, with a cup of coffee. Thank you, Emma. <laughs> so uh, yes, so that that there was quite there were quite profound changes. Uh, not so much in the people of, of Ankara, but more in the political uh, system. In the 80, uh, towards the end of the 80s, the whole thing changed because Erdogan, who um, Rajib Erdogan, became the um, became the president of of uh, Turkey, and his his uh, tenure of office initially, when he was elected, was quite benign. He didn't choose to create too many difficulties, but that changed quite rapidly. And he became he became more strident and more aggressive uh, with the in the east with the Kurdish problem. He tried to he tried to uh, arrange things so that the Kurds could no longer look upon uh, east of Turkey and uh, north of Syria as being their homeland, which created uh, a lot of terrorism. And uh, it, it, it is now probably worse than ever because he is now becoming quite aggressive and taking stances that, that other powers uh, do not like. Um, NATO, for one, uh, the Americans uh, uh, are not at all happy with what what he's doing, but uh, but in essence, it's it's spread all over the Middle East, and there are so many points of of uh, of conflict that uh, it's very difficult to see how they can reach some sort of peace and and uh, progress. Yeah, and um, and Dad, that that time you were there from eighty nine, and and the the Middle East was, you know, it, it's always been a a challenging region, hasn't it, because of all of the um, religious differences. Um, it's um, the in terms of the rivers that flow into the region, they they all flow through, or well, the Tigris and the Euphrates flow through Turkey and into Iran, Iraq, and Syria. Um, and it, it's also an area that's, that's full of oil. Um, so there are some very wealthy nations in, in the Middle East. 
and it makes it a very very volatile region, doesn't it? How how was that? How volatile was it back in 1989? Um, and and did you you were in a fairly senior, well, in a very senior role in in your base in Turkey? Um, how did it feel to be in that position, and and how volatile was it? Yeah, no, I think I think that uh, that's true, and I think at that time, uh, eighty. 89, 90. I mean, there were things happening, but it wa- they weren't quite so obvious as, as they are now. And uh, I think that, especially in the embassy, we were kept um, informed of, of what was happening politically, just so that we could be aware of any changes. And uh, there were so, so many um, pressures on Turkey. I mean, Turkey... As a as a member of NATO, and uh, I know that the, I know that the um, ambassador in in Turkey during those times was was a Turkophile. He was very much um, supporting uh, the Turkish government and Turkish Turkish people, uh, which was must have led him into some conflict because uh, you know it was. It was it was difficult for him to to feel that way. He spoke uh, fluent Turkish, and um, the NATO situation, of course, with Turkey was always a huge convenience for Europe because they were a buffer. Uh, they were a huge buffer state, if you like, between the East and the West, and uh, to some extent, uh, NATO were very, very um, aware of that because any of the conflict, I mean, even now with, with immigrants pouring through from the East into, into Europe and so on, uh, the Turks were very much part of that, trying to solve problems, uh, looking after the, their uh, borders and so on. And those, um, that, those battles are still, are still going on. I think it's difficult to see how uh, the fact that Turkey applied for membership of the European Union some years ago and have never been accepted. So that is a huge irritation for, for Turkey and it's, it's one of the uh, most important aspects of their relationships with uh, Europe, the US and, and, and so on. Now, uh, human rights is a very big factor. And uh, I mean, it's been argued uh, over and over again that Turkish records in in, um, relation to human rights is not very good. But one wonders whether there will ever be a time when the European Union will allow them entry into the, um, into the, the Union. Because, I mean not so much politically, but certainly economically, they're a, very, they're a vibrant nation. Their, their industries are well-developed. Their infrastructure, due to quite a bit to Erdogan, who has, has spent huge amounts in, in um, building roads and building infrastructure throughout the country, that um, it's, it's uh, something that will happen 
probably gradually, but needs to happen more quickly, I think. And also, too, their um, lines of communication and transport through Turkey is, uh, is such a compelling reason for, for allowing them um, entry to the European Union. There's now a, a railway um, line that links up Wuhan province in China with, um, uh, with European countries. And I mean, that's huge. That's absolutely huge. It goes through Turkey, which means that uh, export of, of uh, material goods and so on is so much cheaper and takes less time uh, compared with shipping, for example, the cost of, of transporting goods from China to, uh, to Europe is about half what it is using ships. So there are a lot of things that, that uh, are going well for Turkey, but unfortunately Erdogan is, is quite obstructive and because of his Islamist views, uh, not so much the fact that, that it's Islam, but because it's, it's non-secular. So he's doing a lot of a lot of his decisions are made on the basis that that uh, it's an Islamic uh, country, and doing that in this day and age is 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 not an easy thing to reconcile. And Dad, back in eighty nine um, to ninety one, your one of your key roles was. Um, to keep in regular contact and dialogue with the head of the Turkish army. T- tell me a little bit about him um, and also what kind of conversations you had with him and how regularly. Yes, that was uh, the, the, the general staff headquarters was outside uh, Ankara, which is about uh, 20 kilometers from Ankara. And uh, we met up regularly with um, General. He was Ziat Uran, who was in charge of the of Bayrak and the uh, and the Turkish uh, troops. And it was quite it was quite an eye opener because because it was quite a privilege too to see to see um, inside uh, Bayrak to see how how they functioned to see to see how they treated their, their um, lower ranks and so on. And you could see just even paying one visit how tough the um, Turkish officers were. I mean, they, they stood no nonsense. Um, they they uh, were almost, the, the, the soldiers in particular, were almost in awe of, of uh, officers. And, and they almost crawled on their hands and knees, except that standing to attention was necessary, of course. When uh, an officer appeared, they were just so under the thumb that uh, it was unbelievable. But I mean, the general staff, they were very, you can imagine the furnishings and so on, very similar to what you imagine in in, uh, Russia, for example, old fashioned, uh, very ornate furniture, and they had huge conference rooms. So we used to turn up uh, two or three of us uh, to have a regular um, discussion with the general and also some of his staff. 
uh, he didn't speak English and we spoke some Turkish, but not good enough to uh, cover. So we had a, we had a, a translator. So we used to sit down and go through, there were some, there were certain um, topics that were, that were uh, discussed every time. These were mainly admin and, and so on. But uh, the other more secret uh, discussions were to do with Sinop and uh, any in impact that, that our efforts in Sinop uh, might have impacted on the local, um, local uh, population in Sinop. Uh, and um, it, was, it was fairly, fairly easy and it was very sociable. You had loads of cups of tea, but there were very few issues that were brought up that were serious and couldn't be overcome. And uh, we had such a good relationship with some of the other officers because they used to travel with us. If we visited uh, Sinop, sometimes uh, one of the army officers would come uh, with us and we had a, we had a chauffeur driven car. So it finished up that we sat in the back seat of the, of the car and discussed all sorts of things and that probably was one of the the main reasons why uh, I was privileged enough to really feel that I understood what the Turkish um, what the Turkish nation was like and we would stop in villages uh, on the mountain it was a very mountainous uh, country and the journey from Ankara to Sinop was was over a very um, really high mountain range through a village called Kastamanu. And uh, we always stopped there and chatted to some of the locals and uh, had a few chais and they looked at us and we looked at them, took a few photographs and then down to, um, uh, to Sinop to, to see, you know, to see my staff, but also some of the local people in uh, Sinop. So it was, it was a great privilege, and it was it was a very interesting um, time for for me anyway, and I think the family. And Dad, the um, describe Sinop to me. So you had a hundred staff there. Um, where is it, and what were those staff doing in that location, and why was that location so important? Well, Sinop Sinop was on the southern coast of the Black Sea. Uh, it was in a promontory, uh, so it had sea all around it. And uh, the, the beauty of that site was that we could see uh, across the Black Sea to what was happening in the Crimea and other, other uh, countries bordering the, the, the Black Sea, which Russia had interests in, so we had we had um, surveillance on uh, the radar systems, uh, and also on on different types of of um, VHF and HF communications they had between themselves and and different countries where they had Russian troops. So it was it was um, ideally suited for that, and because the the Turkish uh, 
government allowed us to function there. I think there was some spin-off in the, fa- uh, in the sense that uh, Turkey benefited from some of the intelligence that, that uh, came out of that. Uh, it, it was all the material that, that was, um, that was uh, surveyed and sent up, of course, was sent back to Cheltenham and to um, NSA to be, to be uh, looked at to find out whether there was anything relevant to, to the security of, of various countries. So yeah, so that was that was um, it was also diff- different because Sinop, for the first time, I think I I saw what American uh, staff and troops were like, and and I was I was absolutely amazed. The first time I went to meet uh, my staff in in Sinop, uh, one of the ports of call was the American base, which was only. You could walk to the American base from uh, from the the one that we had, and so we used to get invited over there. They had a squash court there too, which was very which was well used. But looking at some of the some of the Americans, couldn't believe it. They were all they were all hefting huge weights. That was the way they kept saying, I guess, uh, and. Uh, they were huge hulks, really, really big people, uh, big men mainly. Some, some, some women, but mainly men, and uh, they were quite, quite sort of threatening in a way. They, they, you know, they, they strode around and and uh, they weren't that they weren't that friendly. So that that kind of, you know, for me, it, it I thought it might be an issue with some of um, my staff because they mixed some extent and sometimes they would invite the Americans over to uh, to the bar that they had that they ran there uh, but there was there I don't think there were ever any real issues uh, during my time there so I think it worked quite well. At that time dad so 89 it was the year before the first Gulf War started so Desert Storm um, did you were you picking up intelligence then that um, that there was any increased activity in that geography either from your work in Ankara or from your work at Sinop? I, I can't say there was. I, I think that whole that whole um, period leading up to to that was was a surprise to a lot of people. I mean, there were so many decisions made uh, apparently so quickly, uh, possibly without collaboration. And when it actually did happen, I think the whole world was, was, um, was surprised. And, and certainly the Turks uh, didn't show that there was any, apart from the usual hostilities on the border with, with uh, the PKK and so on, the Workers' Party, in the east, I can't say there was any signs that, that that was going to happen. And what exactly can you remember exactly what did happen? What the sequence of events was that led led to the, the start of that Gulf War? Well, I mean the um, you mean the the Kuwaiti uh, the 
the um, attack by the Iraqis on, on Kuwait. Well, I mean, uh, Saddam Hussein, of course, was a very unpopular uh, ruler, and he he had delusions of grandeur. I think it could be said. So he was he was like all nations um, in that area was highly interested in in uh, Kuwait's oil, and uh, I think. I think that was one of the main factors, and of course, with George Bush and Tony Blair being being part of the part of the Allies, um, a, working together, it was it was a very strange the whole thing. And if you remember, can you remember the um, the uh, people that used to go for weapons, trying to check out what weapons of mass destruction were in Iraq. I mean, that was, we didn't, we didn't get involved with that, but from the outside, it, it um, you know, the whole thing looked plausible. And, and some, a lot of the information and uh, intelligence that supported that and supported the, uh, the allies during that period came through GCHQ and NSA. And I can remember having, having long conversations with uh, other members of staff and, and various, uh, doing various work within the department, saying, I wonder how, how accurate and how unbiased the information that is being fed into um, government and and uh, and could be used to give a clear idea of what was happening in in uh, any country. And of course, George Bush was was quite gung ho in the sense that even the way he walked, he always looked as if he had a six gun in his in his hand. And Tony Blair, I think, although he was genuine in in uh, what he said about. Uh, the intelligence he was basing his support of, of uh, George Bush. He was genuine, but we we used to say, well, I mean, if, if people within the department and within intelligence agencies were politically biased and didn't feel that they, uh, the intelligence they were um, Finding and getting and sending to sending through to the the powers that be, like like governments, uh, we often wondered if that was biased, depending on who on who was uh, producing the intelligence within the department and who was who was passing it through, because we weren't sure whether there were any systems by which maybe unintentional bias would have. Would have conflated the um, the evidence of there being, say, uh, weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. So it it it, uh, it was quite a, an education for us within the department where where intelligence was was our objective to find out after the after the uh, the various crises and in the Middle East that perhaps the quality of the 
the intelligence information wasn't as accurate as it should have been and could have been. And Dad, that that um, that's really interesting because really your your role, um, part of your role, um, you know, you had to have deep integrity, but also objectivity. Uh, and you, um, it, it always strikes me that um, that intelligence is um, is is based on truth you know you have to know the truth you have to know what's actually happening so that must have been quite uncomfortable to feel that the the what you were receiving what you were the communications you were gathering that that some of that may not be accurate that there may be a spin on that to suit the politicians is is that what you're saying yeah that that's right but and and i think closer to the uh point of um collection if you like there were quite often depending on what the posting was in the country you were in and so on it it was obvious that it was easy to misconstrue uh, what was happening in the country and i remember in a an arab speaking country uh, round about that time uh, i spent a year there and and uh, looking at how information, especially especially the spoken word, was, was processed by um, translators and so on. Uh, and also the, the complexity of the language. I mean, the complexity of the language, the Arabic, where there are eight, uh, eight uh, cases of the verb, it's very difficult on a, an ongoing basis to make sure that you have the right, uh, the right interpretation. And I think that was um, a vital factor, perhaps, in the Middle East, where analysts and translators were, were listening to, to conversations and perhaps getting it wrong some of the time. Yeah, so it wasn't intentional. It was unintentional. No, yes, it was unintentional. That, that's an important and, differentiator. Yes. And, and that, that, just another point on that, that is why now it's a sort of crossroads because data that's, that's um, collected from satellites and uh, are fed through to the various intelligence agencies, I would think, are probably less uh, likely to create false evidence, unless it was intentional on whoever, whichever country was, was doing that to, to um, you know, to, to lay the scene where there were untruths and so on, just to, to give it that. I mean, that is a, you know, that is a real problem, I think, with intelligence gathering and, and now with, cybersecurity and so on, you can see how many different ways that uh, information is being collected and analyzed by various, um, in various parts of the world and being analyzed by people in, in central, central um, positions like NSA, like GCHQ, like uh, Pine Gap in, in Australia. It must be very, very difficult 
to guarantee that the intelligence you have is correct. And how does that how does that sense check happen? Did did you have people within your team or in um, in um, the Ministry of Defence that would then scrutinise that information that was coming in um, and look at any anything that looked out of context or incorrect? Who who did that sense checking? Yeah, it depended on what the nature of the intelligence. I mean, if it was data, it was probably done by computers and so on and various algorithms. But But if it was the spoken word, then what um, all collection agencies did uh, was to was to try and uh, find people who spoke the language, who were probably natives of that particular area, like in Iraq uh, or like North Africa, and and we had we had a number of those who were totally fluent. In, in the language, either Arabic or Turkish, whatever it was, uh, and understood the nuances that, that were uh, apparent uh, in, in uh, you know, in the spoken word. So, and that was a great source of um, of um, uh, reassurance for the intelligence agencies to know that the person who was translating that particular uh, voice that had been collected knew knew the colloquialisms and and understood the dialect and that that was hugely hugely important wow yeah of course of course but it's not something unless you're um responsible for those teams um it's not something that me as a an everyday citizen considers as part of the job but of course it's absolutely vital one wrong word, yeah. one one incorrect connotation could could be mm-hmm. um, a significant problem. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, this is why over the last um, five years, ten years, I suppose, the quality of the intelligence to some extent has improved because you now have drones, you now have a series of satellites that can they can pick up visual proof of, of different things, uh, drones that that can be can be controlled locally in places like where Afghanistan, uh, Iraq, Syria, and so on. So that the information that's coming through is much more difficult for for um, would be targets to to obscure or to to um, devalue. Does that make sense? It does make sense, yeah. And it, it takes us neatly on to um, technology. So um, through your career, you've, you've, be, you've worked with a whole range of different technologies and we've covered them in other podcasts. But this posting, 89 to 91, um, when we were chatting before we started recording, you were saying that um, you were using radar, you were using satellites, and one of the key things that you were doing was tracking missiles. So can you tell us a little bit about the technology you were using and, and, and what you were actually doing with that te- technology? What were you tracking and why? 
Yeah, I mean, you can imagine in uh, in Turkey, in Istanbul, and also in Ankara, but but uh, predominantly in Sinop, there was a wide open vista that we could uh, we could collect information from a number of sources and collate it. Uh, in the sense that you could say, well, that confirms this and, and, and this confirms that. And with with uh, the missiles that were in use at the time, the, uh, the ground missiles that were like they're using now on Syria and other countries in the Middle East, uh, also in, um, in Israel and the Palestinian thing, those were probably easier to identify because the satellites that were in position uh, could pick them up, uh, sometimes on infrared uh, and the exhaust uh, gases that were being produced, but also with um, the uh, other missiles, the ones that were, were had a greater range it was those were being picked up by by satellites too, but it's it's not easy because some of the the up to date missiles, ballistic missiles, they are um, propelled into space, and they go at phenomenal speeds uh, from a phenomenal height, so it's they're more difficult to pick up uh, than conventional missiles. So that is a that is a, an ongoing concern uh, with uh, NSA, with GCHQ, and all the intelligence agencies. How they can decide whether uh, a country is being attacked by um, by ballistic missiles, and and they, they travel at a huge speed because of because of the fact there's uh, no atmosphere, and also they they're almost free flight from a huge um, altitude onto a target uh, on Earth somewhere. So, so it's, very, it's, it's um, really interesting and, and changing so rapidly. I mean, I find it difficult to, to find out uh, information. Of course, some of it is so, um, it's so difficult to find because technology is moving at such a pace. And Dad, those missiles, those ballistic missiles, how accurate were they? Are they now um, when you were tracking them? In terms of in terms of the yeah, site, the, the, you know, the target site. Yes, I mean the short range missiles. Now you can hear, uh, you know, every week there there's an attack on, say, Syria by missiles, uh, Iran too. And, and those shorter range missiles uh, are easier to pick up and uh, when they're when they're uh, activated uh, because because they're closer for a start they don't travel so quickly as ballistic missiles but they're very accurate I mean they can they can land on a you know on a tennis court uh, they're, they're so accurate which is why in um, some of the strife, a lot of the strife in countries like uh, Syria, uh, are because the um, Al Bashar and uh, Al Bashar and uh, and uh, Russia 
are, are uh, cooperating in, in uh, you know, strikes into the heart of villages and so on, but they are deadly accurate. And, and looking from your position now, so you've been retired for um, 20 plus years now, um, as you look at um, intelligence, you know, look, look from the sidelines, I, so, I suppose you'd, you'd describe it as now, at the technology and the, both in terms of surveillance, but also in terms of warfare. Um, what are your observations, Dad? Well, I think that, um, I mean, you can see for, where the emphasis is now. Uh, with uh, cybersecurity. I mean, it's such a big issue. It's just huge. And I mean, when, when um, factions like some of the terrorist factions, like Al-Qaeda and, and uh, Al-Bashad in, in uh, North Africa, when, when they start, when the intelligence agencies start thinking that they have control over some of the some of the information that's being uh, passed from one from one country or from one faction to another. It's a very very difficult thing to do, and this is why all of a sudden there's this huge increase in in the interest in um, in cybersecurity, but also also in ways of counteracting that. And, and countries like China are so far ahead, I think, on on their um, their infrastructure. I mean, it's shown now with uh, with the Chinese this Huawei um, furore was because uh, you know the Allies thought that China could could somehow control what was happening in certain networks, and some of those networks are, were vital. They might, they might be connected with control of, uh, you know, nuclear weapons. It could, could be anything. And, and if there are ways of, 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 uh, of uh, being able to look at the data of other countries and, and giving you some control over, over the software that they were using to control uh, missiles, say, or, or troops, then it's a really very difficult thing, but so inexpensive compared with the conventional ways of of having of having um, satellite dishes and so on, and, and loads of people to analyze what's happening. Fascinating. Mm, it is. It's it's frightening as well, isn't mm. it? Yeah, no, it is. It's um, yeah, that that's. Uh, an interesting subject, and it's one that, that we all have to try and keep abreast of. But what do you think? Have you have you got views on on that and cybersecurity? And... Yeah, I have. Um, I mean, I I think it's a massive threat um, because technology and um, ways of communicating are increasing. Um, in two ways. One is in sophistication, things like encryption, and the other is volume. You know, how do intelligence officers keep abreast of the volume um, and also the amazing technology developers who are out there making it easier to communicate? You know, the intelligence community needs to keep 
two steps ahead of all of that. Yeah. And that must take some doing. Oh, yes. How do you do it? I mean, you see it in a less, in a less uh, tactical way, I guess, strategic way with uh, Facebook and uh, WhatsApp and so on. I mean, keeping a hold on, on the information that's passing from, from uh, between subscribers is, is just a nightmare. I mean, it can, it can change so quickly. And unless governments get a grip of that and, and start uh, making sure that these vehicles are not being used for transfer of, or control of, um, of um, you, you know, bodies like Al-Qaeda and so on. I don't know how they're going to do that, but they're going to, they're going to have to spend a lot of money. Well, and, and it comes back to listening to you, Dad, uh, you know, it comes back to people. Always it comes back to people and diplomacy, doesn't it? And, and yeah. you're, you know, talking about this, this posting that you had to Turkey, you know, that, that, uh, that alliance was, was very strong. Um, the partnership was very strong. And in a, in a region that requires, um, uh, connection and understanding. Have Britain having such a strong ally back then in Turkey was really, really important. And it just, mm-hmm. you know, that 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 also worries me that diplomacy is not seen as um, it doesn't feel like it's seen as important today than it was. That you you can have technology that will resolve everything, but actually people are at the heart of. Um, making relationships work or not and understanding or not what do you think yeah i think that's i think that's true and i think um i've said this often to you that listening to comment on various uh, troubled areas in the world uh, you hear you hear some people who obviously have no background in that particular country or or organisation, and and there's a lot of flannel and and misconceptions. But if you listen to some of the experienced people who were either part of organisations that interfaced with different countries, like like um, diplomats, I mean some some of the comment now, some of those uh, ex ambassadors and so on is so much on the button I think because they were there and and they've 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 sat and spoken with uh, opposite numbers for years and years and years and and during that they get a feel for the situation that you can't do in any other way and um, that certainly comes from Turkey some of the highly efficient people they had there, like the ambassador, like, like uh, well, Sir, Sir Peter Westmacott is one of the, the um, you know, outstanding commentators on different parts of the world. He was, he was uh, ambassador in, in um, Washington, of course. And you have to listen to people who have background, who have understanding, and, and uh, I mean, it's no good listening to people who, who have half truths and and make up the bits that they don't know of because that's such a dangerous thing. But it's happening so frequently now that that governments and offices are 
are uh, sidetracked by comment that is not accurate and is 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 uh, it's a really serious problem. And and time in country or in region is really important. You can always tell when you meet people that have been um, immersed in a region. And they just, uh, you know, it's their understanding is almost innate about the culture of that region, the behavior. Uh, and you need to understand that depth of, um, you know, how people behave and why they behave in a certain way to be able to operate effectively. Yes. And I yes. think about your role in, in Ankara, you know, dealing with the general of the Turkish army. Um, you'd already had one posting in Turkey. So you had a deep understanding of that nation yeah. and what's important to the people and um, the, the cultural nuances of, of the, the people and also the different regions that you were based in. Yes. How, yeah. how important do you think, given the seniority of your position in Turkey at that time, how important do you think that knowledge of Turkey but not just Turkey, you'd been based in Saudi Arabia as well, of that region was? Well, I, I think that, um, you know, I often say this when I'm in discussion with people about various uh, topics, politics and, and so on. You have, the more background you have, the more contact you've had with uh, people of different countries, of different uh, views and so on the better equipped you are to sit and listen and to discuss certain points and reach a balanced opinion, which 90% of the time is accurate and you can trust and you can think, well, okay, I've, I've spoken to people, I've watched them, watched the body language. And of course, ex-ambassadors um, and, and uh, people who have been in in different countries, they're adept at that. I mean, they have, you know, they sit and look and, and you can hear some of the analysis. Oh, yes, Putin say, we'll do this. He's done this for the last 10 years and he won't change. He'll do that. And more often than not, 90% of the time, they're bang on, on the button, you know. They know that that's, that's the, the sort of behavior one can uh, expect. Like in the Ukraine now where they're having huge convulsions in the in the west of Ukraine. And it, uh, that is invaluable. It doesn't matter how many machines, how many, how many um, cybersecurity experts you have. At some stage, an assessment of, of what a country will do, how dangerous it is, I, like you're saying, is, is so invaluable, so valuable to have personal experience of that people who have mixed who have who have spoken to people who have negotiated with them i mean it's 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 probably the best way of assessing what's going to happen next i'm going to ask you this is my last um last sort of area of um questioning for today dad but um, I'm also really interested uh, you know part of my role in my day job is is working with and um, working in communities of journalists. Um, and it, it always strikes me that journalists that are very um, uh, focused on a region and have spent a lot of time in a region, they have almost a level of understanding that diplomats have um, because they have spent so long 
talking to people, understanding the culture, understanding the region. In in intelligence, in your role, um, how much contact did you have with journalists? And then my second question is, do you agree with me that journalists are, are important for their insight into people and and certain geographies? Yeah, I th- I think I think I agree with that. Your last statement there. I I didn't. I mean, I've had contact with uh, journalists uh, over a period of years, like Jane Howard, the. Uh, the um, BBC correspondent in Turkey. Uh, we did a lot of travelling with her in the east of Turkey. Now she was a very shrewd uh, lady. She she um, she uh, was so interesting to travel with. We did one one trip that was about a month long, and we travelled through all the east of Turkey. But she she all the time presided over the local situation and. The difficulties and the the uh, possible uh, answers to some of the questions, like in the PKK uh, region east of Turkey, and you could see that she had such a deep uh, knowledge of what was going on, which allowed her, um, when she was reporting on, on areas like that, to give a real depth of understanding and realism. Uh, for those particular uh, areas. And, and I think some of the good journalists, you listen to them, some of the ones who are now functioning in the, in the Middle East, you just say, wow, that is incredible. They have so much, uh, so much information. And I think that because politics and economics and so on can, can um, obscure that facet of, of uh, reporting, uh, especially tr- uh, areas in the world that are under huge pressure, it must be that that there are better ways of conveying their expertise and knowledge into the wider into the wider um, frame. And I, and I think more often than not, now you get this very narrow, politically motivated um, points of view. If they listened to journalists, really good journalists who'd been around and, and you know, like, like uh, who shall I say, Lise Doucette, she's one who, who is, I mean, where she goes, she does it time and time again. She gets right into the heart of what's happening, say, in Syria. You've got to listen to them and, and realise that they have, they have up-to-date knowledge and they're not looking at political bias they're just saying this is what we saw and dad do they um final question um do they play a part in intelligence gathering and informing um your you know your peers about what's happening in a region journalists yeah you're talking about Uh, i think there's very little of that because i think there's a certain amount of intelligence agencies. I mean, obviously the job is to get as much information as possible that is credible and useful in the sense of, of devising strategies. The trouble with this, with that, is that the, the um, uh, media is so, are so fond of, 
of themselves and have such have such definite biases for for various political parties say or uh, or people i mean you've got to start looking at at uh, what the outlets are and say well i do understand that and i think that most more often than not those reporters who are going to to foreign um uh, to for for you know like in the middle east say you can you can rely on them whereas people who are who are analyzing what's being said creating a bias which is maybe unintentional uh, means that that looking at journalists for intelligence um, input you would have to be very selective that's really, really interesting, Dad. That's a very. I've never asked you about that before, but that's a very um, from somebody who who was in a role where you were um, objective and seeking the truth. It's very interesting hearing that view, um, and and I can completely understand it. You know, yeah, there is I mean, there is unconscious bias that comes into journalism for sure. That's good. Yeah, you're uh, you've come across that because you're working with uh, media and journalists all the time and and um do you find that that you over the years you you can have interviews and so on and you make a, a judgment sometimes on the veracity of some of the information that you're being passed and and i should think the longer you do that the more adept you become at at uh, making a decision and saying well i can believe that or i can't believe that do you find that yeah, definitely. Yeah. No, you you do, and and the unconscious bias comes for many 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 reasons. It arises, doesn't it? You know, your yeah. points of reference, your experience, your um, your knowledge. You know, it's it's not. It, it really isn't intentional. Good journalists will never um, intend to be biased in their reporting, but sometimes it happens just because of the context from which they are um, debating a or reporting on a situation. And, and that's just human. That's just human nature, isn't it? Yeah. And that's yeah. why diplomats are such an amazing breed of people, because they maintain objectivity um, and reason throughout. They're not trying to get a headline. They're not trying to um, to make some make a story out of something that doesn't exist. It is purely objective, always. Yes. Yeah. I agree with that. Well, thank you very much, Dad. Um, we could talk about Turkey for for another four hours, I'm sure. Mm. It's such a fascinating country and region, and and the history of of that area is um, is just vast, isn't it, on so many levels. Uh, but it's been really lovely talking to you about your time there, and um, and and just how you know how that time fed into what is uh, you know has become such a volatile region um it's it, you know one country pops up as being troubled then another then another you know iran iraq syria it's constantly in the news and it's yeah. just um about time when you were in ankara 89 to 91 was really the start of of the modern day conflict that we're seeing in that geography so it's been so interesting hearing hearing the roots of it mm -hmm. well, well thanks thank jenny yeah, you're very thank good you. and uh we'll um make a date for the next one shall we 
Yeah, well, thank you, Dad. And uh, you'll be going off for your roast dinner with my sister, Emma. What are you having this evening? I don't know. I don't know if we're having a roast dinner. You know. Is it barbecue? I, I, barbecue season? Barbecue season. Yeah, it might do. But uh, a project in the, uh, with the uh, allotment is producing a lot of salad beans and, and uh, tomatoes and things. So it's, it's great. That's great. Well, that community project, that setting up the community polytunnel has been such a big part of your COVID experience, hasn't it? Yeah, what a positive true. thing to come out of COVID. That's true. So, well, thank you very much, Jenny, and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, Dad. Well, thanks okay. ever so much. And uh, yeah, I'll chat to you soon. So we will record the next podcast we're going to do is on Dad's time in Hong Kong, which was just before his posting to Ankara in 88 and 89. So thank you very much, Dad. And thank you to all of you out there who listen to us. Bye.